You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi. And welcome to Who Did What Now? The History Podcast with me, your uh, apparently controversial host, Kerry Charlewood. Social scientist and reader of books. Hi, everybody. It, it has been an interesting week. I went viral on TikTok. Uh, uh, kind of. Um, as you know, some of you know, if you're here from that, hello. Welcome to my circle of discontent. For those of you who don't know, I am a social scientist who talks about history on the internet. Uh, sometimes via this podcast and sometimes on TikTok. And two of my videos did really well this week. So, um, my vid- yeah, videos. Uh, one of which was, uh, it's about Leonardo da Vinci. Basically, Leonardo da Vinci had, like, this extreme level of fitness. And there are stories of him, like, being able to, like, bend a horseshoe with one hand. And, you know, I mean, the metal was different back then. So, and if he was really strong, he probably could do it. But anyway... Um, so that did really well, and I was genuinely surprised, because I was like, okay. And then I had another video, and then I did another video of uh, Mother Teresa. And that kind of blew up. And so that that was that was a bit interesting. I, I, I genuinely did not think that, of all things, something about Mother Teresa would blow up like that. So it was requested that I would go a little bit more in depth and so this week's episode is Mother Teresa did what now? Had a variety of sources. I wanted to ensure that I used a collection of verifiable medical paper called The Lancet in 1994. They had um, Mother Teresa's Care for the Dying um, by Robin Fox in 1994 and there was also letters from David Jeffrey, Joseph O'Neill's and Gilly Burns also in The Lancet. Uh, There was an independent uh, study um, report done um, by Serge Larrivé, um Carol Seneschal and Genevieve Chenard. Um, I'm sorry if I've dipped, but I'm going to say now, uh, apologies for mispronouncing, mispronouncing things. Um, this was 2013 and, um, and the study was called um, Le Côte de de Mère Teresa uh, Studies in Reli- Religion as Science 
release you. The Mishmere position, Mother Teresa in Theory and Practice by Christopher Hitchens, and also his documentary Hell's Angel in 1994. Um, uh, an article by Nick Squires for The Telegraph in 2017, Mother Teresa Legacy Under Cloudy Sainthood Nears. Uh, Mother Teresa, The Final Verdict by Dr. Arup Chatterjee. There's also a documentary um, from 2013, Thinking Aloud, a film on Mother Teresa, Myth vs. Reality by Amit Ghosh. There, and there's a collection of articles um, that I sort of skimmed through from um, the Independent Court at UK from 2016, the New York Times again in 2016, India Today, Mother Teresa, The Genius of Calcutta by Sally Warner in 2003, uh, Mother Teresa and Her Critics uh, by William Jr. Doino, and that was 2013, Saint of the Gutters with Friends in High Places, um, Times Higher Education, in 2003 by Krishna Dutta, a BBC documentary, Mother Teresa, The Final Verdict, um, and that was 2010, by William Crawley. Original Sin, Secret Accounts, Hidden Truths, Blackmail and the Forces Blocking Pope Francis' Revolution, by Gianluigi Nozzi, in 2017. So, and also Mother Teresa's own letters. So this is, these are my sources. <laughs> Feel free to go through any of them. They're uh, all linked in my my TikTok, so go ahead. Agnes Gonje Boyajiu was born on the 26th of August 1910 in Skopje, um, which is now the capital of North Macedonia, and to her Albanian parents. So basically, when she turned 12, uh, she said that God came to her and... Agnes would be Agnes would be the anglicized version of Agnes, which I've probably mispronounced. But like as a young girl, she was fascinated by the stories of you know Christian men, missionaries and their service in Bengal. And by the time she turned twelve, like she was convinced that you know she had to join a religious order and that she had to commit herself to a religious life. And in 1928, when she was 18, she prayed at the Black Madonna of Vitina Letnis and where she often went on pilgrimages. This basically made her feel like, absolutely, I need to go and be a nun and shit. So, so off she goes, decides to join the Sisters of Loreto at the Loreto Abbey in Rathvarnham in Ireland to learn English. Because, of course... Ireland is the place you should go to learn English. Uh, yikes. Anyway. Um, and uh, so she moves there and she never sees her family again. So after a year in Ireland, she heads to India and goes to Darjeeling in the Lower Himalayas. And she learns Bengali. And she teaches at St. Teresa's School, which is near her convent. So she takes the name um, Teresa to be named after Therese de Lisieux the patron saint of missionaries, okay, and takes her religious vows on the 24th of May, 1931. So she takes her religious vows in 1931, and then she takes her solemn vows in 1937. So in, okay, skip forward to 10th of September, 1946, and Teresa has this experience, and she basically calls this the call within the call. She was Travelling to the Loreto Convent in Darjeeling from Calcutta um, for like an annual retreat. And she 
leaves the Liberato Order and creates her own, the Missionaries of Charity. So the missionary work starts in 1948. Um, she takes away her Loretto habit and replaces it with the, the white cotton sari that we all know her to have. Like When you think of Mother Teresa, you think of that wee white sari with the blue border on it. So she goes to Patna, gets her Indian citizenship and receives basic medical training at the Holy Family Hospital. Okay, I'm going to try and pronounce this. She um, so she found she found a school in Motio, Kolkata, and she was joined at the beginning by a group of women and then joined her sort of religious community. And by all accounts, this first year was rough. Like, properly rough. Um, there, you know, she wasn't getting any funding from anybody. Uh, there was nothing coming in. And she was struggling with the very basic necessities. So basically, she has to beg... Her order basically has to beg for food and supplies and everything else. In 1950, the Vatican basically gives her permission to have her congregation, the Missionaries of Charity, so they give her like that full stamp. Yay, off you go, have fun. In 1952, she opens up uh, a hospice, converting um, a Hindu temple into the Caligat home for the dying. The whole concept of this was so that those brought to the Calicut Home for the Dying would be able to receive not only medical attention for their needs um, and to die with dignity um, in accordance with their faith. Hindus would receive water from the Ganges, Muslims would um, read from the Quran, and you know Catholics would receive like last rites and so on and so forth. So after 1955, when um, Teresa opens up Umnamala Shishubhavan, the children's home of the Immaculate Heart, um, just like an, an, an orphanage and a place for like homeless youths and stuff. And this is when she starts gaining attention. So the Missionaries of Charity starts, you know, attracting more recruits and more donations. And, you know, and by the 60s, it has hospices, orphanages, leper houses throughout India. So then, like mid 60s, you know, Venezuela. Italy, Tanzania, Austria, um, and by the 70s, you know, they've got houses and foundations in the US, in Asia, Africa, Europe, like all over the world. So the Missions of Charity Brothers then gets founded in 1963, I'm going back a wee bit, um, and this is just like the brother to the sisters of her missionaries of charity. And loads of priests are like contacting Mother Teresa, they're like, hey... Can you um have something for us too? And so yeah, she's like cool. Nineteen eighty one opens that founds the Corpus Christi movement for priests. Um, basically combines the vocational aims of the missionaries of charity with the resources of the priesthood. So by nineteen ninety seven, when she dies, her initial thirteen member congregation in Calcutta had grown to have more than four thousand sisters who managed um, AIDS hospices charity centres, orphanages worldwide, cared for refugees, the blind, the disabled, the aged, the poor, the homeless, the victims of epidemics, pandemics, famine, flood, so on and so forth. And you're thinking, wow, Mother Teresa, super awesome, helping the sick, helping the poor, saves children in the middle of a war zone, picks people off the street, cares for people in accordance to their religious needs and medical needs and all of this sounds fantastic she was promoted by the vatican and 
the UN and everyone else for being this amazing humanitarian and doing this because of her faith and her love of God and her care for the poor. And you have no idea how much I respected this woman in my youth and how much I didn't want to believe. I remember reading information about this many, many years ago and about a decade. And I'd heard things about this the decade before that. And the first time I, you know, heard information, my brain automatically went, no, she's amazing. She's a humanitarian. She couldn't have done any of these things. And then the second time, you know, when I started studying social science and uh, researching the claims, then at home, when I researched and researched, and then I thought I would do it again. So let's talk about this, shall we? An independent study. So here we are. Mother Teresa dedicates her life to eradicating poverty, gives up her 20th century world of materialism. You know, she's there to help the destitute and the diseased, risking her life for her missionary work. And she has such wonderful quotes. Peace begins with a smile. She wins the Nobel Peace Prize. Again, opera. she has 517 missions in 100 different countries. But here's the thing, missionary work in itself, like historically, is generally a form of intolerance and discrimination. Usually white, generally wealthy individuals, you know, they spend their lives um, dedicating it to involving themselves in cultures that they know nothing about. How many times have the missionaries gone to Africa to teach people about the Lord, or um, Junipero Cerro, the Franciscan monk who <clears throat> converted and informed the Native Americans. Do we not think it's like a little bit coincidental that the main efforts of these missionaries have, generally over the last couple of centuries, focused on largely non-white countries? Like we talk about a white saviour complex, and this is the definition of a white saviour complex. The church labels these, that these indigenous races and cultures and languages and traditions are barbaric. Like, obviously, back in the Crusades, you know, all of this, the taking over, was done by violent force, and now it's generally a form of emotional blackmail. Mother Teresa was motivated by ministry and not by morality. She publicly bragged about coercing vulnerable people into conversions. On their deathbeds. Even former members of her religious order, the Missionaries of Charity, came forward and um, saying that Teresa encouraged members to baptize dying patients without regard to the individual's religion. Um, one of the things they said would, would they want a ticket to heaven? And any sort of affirmative reply was taken as a consent to baptism. And they were not to inform them officially of it because, you know, she's baptizing. Hindus and Muslims. And you can say, oh well, maybe they wanted to be baptised, but these patients were not provided appropriate and sufficient information for them to make an informed decision about whether or not they want to be baptised. And they may not even know the the significance of a Christian baptism. And there are also reports in some of her homes that aid was refused. Aid and help was refused to those who would not convert. I mean, some people 
argue that forced conversion is, you know, morally neutral or benevolent, but you're being disrespectful to the faith of the dying and forcing a religious sacrament on them without their consent. And you can argue, well, babies don't have consent. Yeah, but babies generally have the option when they get bigger to, you know, have their communion or their confirmation, which the whole point of which is to confirm their faith in God. This is an investigation in 1994. I'm not talking about the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. We're talking about the 90s. 1994. So the Home for the Dying is investigated and the medical care is referred to as haphazard. Quite a lot of him like had zero. So a lot of the you know, the sisters of the order and the volunteers that were there didn't have medical knowledge. They are the ones who made the decisions best they can. So they're treating patients with medicine and they're like, I'll be calling doctors from time to time. Doctors were available. Like, for example, um, a patient with a fever was treated with, you know, paracetamol antibiotics only to be discovered to have malaria um, by a visiting doctor who prescribed chloroquine. Like, doctors were available. They just only brought them in every now and again. Staff either, so the volunteers as well, it's like they couldn't distinguish between curable and incurable patients. And investigations were rarely permissible. So there was a neglect of diagnosis, the lack of analgesia, and... Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Basically, the approach by Mother Teresa was very separate to a hospice movement. So the whole point is that you're supposed to have a lack of pain. The purpose of a hospice is to give you care and to ensure that your passing is as peaceful and painless as possible. And I'm not just saying this because I've been to a hospice more than one occasion in my life. Um, But the purpose is comfort and care. There were other reports of other facilities where syringes would be run under cold water and reused until they were blunt. Um, 
terminal cancer patients would be given aspirin. The, the issue seems to be that the missionaries' practice was to care for the sick by glorifying their suffering instead of relieving it. Mother Teresa was quoted as saying that suffering brings people closer to Jesus. Her faith, her belief that suffering, it influenced her care more than her desire to help. And she saw the struggle of people in poverty as admirable. She likens it to Christ on the cross. And and in, in the worst of it all, she encourages and condones it. The doctors who visited her hospices unsurprisingly appalled at their conditions. The staff, I mean, they weren't able to make distinctions between those who were dying and those who had curable illnesses. I mean, we talked about in the 50s when she set up her missions of charity, her home for the dying was, and I quote, where people who lived like animals could come to die like angels, and that those in pain were being kissed by Jesus. I mean, really, at the end of the day, shouldn't she have brought, when she was dying, why did she get such preferential treatment? Shouldn't she have gone to the home of the dying that she so adored? It's just something to think about. Anyway. Reporters went undercover in one of her um, orphanages and in Kolkata and described the conditions as squalid. And <clears throat> that children were tied to beds all day, lying in their own filth. And that the walls were adorned in pictures of Mother Teresa. Please explain what the dignity is in that to me. If any of you know what the dignity is in that to me, I don't know. <clears throat> I am going to make an apology now. Um... Uh, I'm doing it on TikTok as well. Um, one, but one of the reports of her hospices uh, compared it, likened it to that of a concentration camp. And I stated this in the TikTok video that I made. And I am ignorant and I'm incredibly sorry for any Jewish people and people of Jewish descent that I offended with that statement. It was not my intention, but um, five people contacted me regarding that statement and compare. And one of the, and one of the people who was talking to me stated that they felt that such a comparison was used to delegitimize the horrors of the Holocaust and the situations they're in. And I completely understand. Um, I didn't think. I didn't think. I'm, I'm of Jewish descent. My family are Jewish. And they were very nonchalant. And, But that doesn't mean that it doesn't deeply affect and hurt others. And, and that's not an excuse. That's just me not taking the time to consider out with my own bubble. And that's on me, and that is my fault, and I can only apologise. I am really sorry, and 
I can only do my best and work to not make such a comparison again. Because that's not fair. And just because something doesn't affect me directly doesn't mean it doesn't affect other people and fuck that. No, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. Back back to Mother Teresa. Back to Mother Teresa. So one of the things that Mother Teresa states is that God told her to help the poor whilst living amongst them. However, in the, do we call it the peak of her career? The, but here's the thing, she, she spent very little time in Kolkata at the sort of peak of her fame. She was jetting around country to country, <clears throat> rallying against divorce laws in Ireland. Ireland was voting on a divorce referendum and Mother Teresa goes, that says that the children of divorce will grow up spiritually poor. You'd think that someone who spent their life around people, the, the impoverished and the destitute, would understand the trauma and the pain that comes with intimate partner violence or abuse in all its form. The next thing you know, she's uh, heading off to getting photographed with Princess Diana and suddenly being photographed with the victims of industrial and natural disasters although you know mother teresa said she was apolitical for some reason quite a lot of her time during this height was spent directly intervening with on political affairs like globally like what she wasn't living amongst the poor she wasn't spending her time with them at this point I mean, at this point, she actually had written letters saying she no longer had faith in God. She spends time with the rich and the elite and not the impoverished figures. So she supports Lucio Gelli, um, who's nominated for a Nobel Prize in Literature. And this dude, um, he was known for being a, a propaganda specialist with ties to the neo-fascist movement in Italy and the military junta who ruled during Argentina's last dictatorship. Mm-hmm. When the Prime Minister of India, Indira Gandhi, suspended civil liberties in 1975, otherwise known as the emergency, Mother Teresa said, people are happier. There are no jo- there are more jobs. There were no strikes. Like, yay for this. Okay. She receives money from the publisher Robert Maxwell, who embezzled... £450 million pounds from his employees' pension funds. Charles Keating, also an embezzler. Bankruptcy fraud, so on and so forth. And also, Charles Duvalier. The Duvalier family had a dictatorship in Haiti. And they lived in luxury while their subjects suffered in poverty. They murdered and tortured political rivals. And we're drug traffickers. I, I, oh. And this wasn't a secret. This is something that was clearly, that was well known at the time. Uh, but Mother Teresa said they were full of love. And she received funds from them too. Mother Teresa's missions of charity received millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, pounds, and donations. 
And very, very few of that went to fund the missions themselves. Fun fact, in India, where it was required by law, the missionaries of charity refused to publish their accounts. And they were asked to do so in Germany and they were like, none of your business. The annual figures of the, again, former members of the order came forward and they were, um, the annual figures of the, of missionary charity's income was about, in New York alone, was about $50 million, but there is little to no evidence of expenditures. So, in general, um, you know, these services are, you know, they rely on donations and new missions that are generally set up after that are supposed to become self-sufficient. An investigation into the funding suggested that the majority of the money that she received was sent straight to the Vatican Bank. So documents are published regarding the Vatican Bank, um, which revealed that the funds that were being held in Mother Teresa's name on behalf of her charity made her the bank's biggest client and that the money amounted to billions. And had she made the withdrawals, the bank would have risked default. Like, what? And here's the thing, like, and the, and the money that she was receiving wasn't going to the people she was supposed to be helping. She seemed to be a friend of poverty, not of the poor. So, Mother Teresa as a helper of the poor. Like, and here's the thing, I could go on and on and on, and I'm trying to get, I'm trying to keep this as succinct as possible here. So, when, when Mother Teresa seen as a helper of the poor is misleading at best. This public image is misleading at best. The missionaries of charity, like in Calcutta, there were, there, like say for example, uh, during the time, at the end of her reign, right, there were 200 charities of, or charitable organisations in Calcutta. Um, with only like a couple hundred people being served by like even the largest of, of the homes. Um, but of the missions of charity. But say for example the Assembly of God were serving like eighteen thousand people a day. Like, okay. There were eight facilities in Papua New Guinea. And at the time there were like eight facilities in Papua New Guinea and they had zero residents in them. Why would you need eight if you have zero residents? The funding, it seems, <clears throat> instead of going into charitable works and to providing care for the less fortunate, was channeled to fund missionary work or just siphoned straight into the Vatican Bank. And here's the thing, like in later letters she talked about how she no longer believed in God and all I keep thinking of is if she no longer believed in God but she still cared for the poor or those or, or the impoverished, why didn't she use her notoriety to ensure that the funding that was going to the Vatican was being channeled back to those who needed it instead of to the Vatican? Because she could have used her humanitarian status to turn that back. It's just, I'm, it's just, it's just something that bothers me. Um, but yeah, it seems to be that Mother Teresa 
loved poverty more than she loved the poor. And she was quoted as saying, I think it is very beautiful for the poor to accept their lot, to share it with the passion of Christ. I think the world is being much helped by the suffering of the poor people. So Mother Teresa died on the 5th of September 1997. When Mother Teresa dies in Kolkata, very few people came to visit her body. And it was left in a room for two days until moved by her fellow missionaries. Her state-led funeral was attended by approximately a hundred non-missionaries and government officials, which would suggest that her relationship with the people of Kolkata was more strained than, than was ever portrayed by the media, by the church, by whatever. Pope John Paul II waives the five-year waiting list, effectively, for sainthood. Um, you have, in order to become a saint, you have to um, provide two miracles, effectively. And mm, apparently these... So these were... These are dubious. I'm not saying that they're a miracle, but... <laughs> but um, if you... One day I will talk about the supposed miracles um, of, of saints, because some of them are actually pretty funny. And... Mm, <clears throat> As someone who went to Sunday school, let me tell you, I have plenty. <laughs> so I just want it to be clear as well. Like, So she got canonised by Pope Francis. She's a saint. What do we learn today? Faith should not be fanatical. And that we need to... And we should be open to discussions and faith about faith and religion and be respectful as we can without infringing on each other's rights and that's the issue without infringing on each other's rights I'm not saying she didn't do good things and yeah, Gonja Blayaju, Teresa of Calcutta she was a real person she was not perfect she was flawed she doubted her faith and ultimately she failed the very people that she was hoping to help somewhere along the way She's strayed from her path. Whether this was unintentional or intentional, I cannot say. But we have to be aware of when faith becomes fanatical. Listen, this isn't everything. This is in religion. This is in politics. This is in environmentalism. And furthermore, and frankly, at this point in human history, with all we know, with everything we have access to, we really should have matured past the glorification of this colonialist guilt and bloody white supremacy. I generally believe that we need to do better. And here's the thing, we can say that we're doing this, that and the other. I mean, if you can, if you have the ability to. I am mentally drained after that one, I'm not going to lie. Um, but um, that was this week's episode of Who Did What Now? And that was a heavy, heavy one. Yikes. I'm going to go um, have a hot chocolate now. Um, and I think the real lesson is don't put people on a pedestal and don't believe that they're the be-all and end-all. And don't forget, if you want to see more of me, or hear more of me, if you want to see more of me, actually, um, I have an Instagram, who did what now pod. I have an e- and I'm on TikTok, who did what now pod? Who did what now? It's one of those. Uh, um, I'm on 
you can email me at whodidwhatnowpod at gmail.com. And I'm on Twitter as well, whodidwhatnowpd, because there wasn't enough characters. So I'm on everything. You can come say hi. Um, I actually wanted to do a little thing where we talk about personal histories. Because history is about people and times and doesn't necessarily have to be a, a large event. Like I'm going to do a little mini-sode where I talk about my grandfather. <laughs> we talk about family members and and stories because why not share your family stories, your memories, your history with others? So, and remember, if you want to share any of your family history for our mini-sode, for my new mini-sode that's coming up, um... Feel free to email me at whodidwhatnowpod at gmail.com. Thanks! <laughs> I'm very excited. Um, and remember, history isn't boring. You're just not paying attention. Thank you everyone for listening and I look forward to talking to you again next week and I'll see you on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and everywhere. <laughs> Adios, au revoir, au revoir, my friends. Farewell. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.